AJT readers, this is Josh Levitsky, and I'd like to welcome you to this month's, um, we have a special episode on the ethics of vaccine mandates. And today I'm joined by, as always, uh, Dr. Roz Manon from the University of Nebraska. But in particular today, uh, Dr. Emily Blumberg, uh, the past AST president, transplant infectious disease physician at the University of Pennsylvania, has invited three speakers who wrote articles for AJT on the ethics of vaccine mandates. And they will be presenting today and we'll have hopefully a, a lively, interesting discussion following their presentation. So I'm going to turn this over to Dr. Blumberg, who, and I appreciate um, you and all of the authors coming today to do this podcast. Thanks so much, Josh and Roz. It's really a pleasure to be here. I think it's no surprise to any of us that now, almost two years into the pandemic, that we've seen 49 million cases of COVID-19 in the United States with a daily average at this point of 110,000 cases a day. Almost 787,000 cases are people who've died. And it's pretty clear that the end isn't in sight. We know that at this point, 60% of the United States is fully vaccinated and throughout the world, vaccine rates vary widely based on availability of vaccines and the ability to deliver these vaccines, as well as vaccine hesitancy issues. The rates in the U.S. vary from a high of 73% fully vaccinated to 45% in some areas. And it's very clear there are significant regional differences. We'd all have to agree that the vaccines to this point have been demonstrated to be extremely safe and effective at preventing infection, but more importantly, effective at preventing disease, hospitalization, severe illness, and death. And while this is especially true for people who are not immune suppressed, even in solid organ transplant recipients, vaccines have made a huge difference. We also know that they are most helpful when administered prior to transplant, when immunosuppression clearly is associated with decreased vaccine responsiveness. So it's important, we think, to think about vaccinating our transplant candidates and our healthcare workers. One of the most effective tools to boost vaccination rates has been implementation of mandates. So it's natural to consider this in the transplant space. I'm sorry, let me just say that again. Clearly, there are some roadblocks along the way to implementing full vaccination, including availability, as well as the fact that some age groups are still not eligible for vaccine. And there's certainly some significant uh, hesitancy issues we still grapple with. I can think of no better group to discuss this today than our three panelists. We'll be starting off with Dr. Olivia Cates, an assistant professor of medicine at Johns Hopkins University in the Division of Infectious Diseases, and a well-known uh, speaker and writer on the topic of vaccines in transplantation. She'll be followed by Dr. Benjamin Hitman, a senior vice president and head of transplantation medicine at Fresenius. And last but certainly not least will be Amy Silverstein, a well published author and lawyer and a two-time heart transplant recipient who's a member of the Transplant Community Advisory Committee for the American Society of Transplantation. So we'll start first with Dr. Cates. 
Thanks, Emily. It's really exciting for me to be here, and I'm looking forward to learning a lot from Ben and Amy, but happy to start first. Uh, I'll mention my paper, which is published in the American Journal of Transplantation, that I worked on with a group of international co-authors uh, with the goal of describing the ethical considerations, both in support of and perhaps raising issues with uh, vaccine mandates for transplant candidates. Ultimately, we concluded that mandates for vaccination are ethically justifiable. And I think thinking specifically of the U.S. context where vaccines are widely available, um, available at no cost uh, to candidates, and where patients have access to transplant programs with uh, extensive opportunities for counseling and advice, I personally think that vaccine mandates are an appropriate uh, new step in the pre-transplant evaluation. Uh, for me, this is really about the range of benefits that our patients, our programs, and our communities uh, can potentially see from achieving higher rates of vaccination. It's not really about blocking people uh, from getting a transplant. I want to see patients transplanted, but I want to see it happen under the safest possible circumstances, and that's really after vaccination. The individual candidates uh, who are transplanted after vaccination are more likely to have a persistent and robust immune response from the vaccine. And that's going to protect them from complications like COVID-19 infection, but also associated uh, acute kidney injury or renal failure for kidney transplant patients, even graft loss. Of course, COVID-19 associated mortality, uh, potentially chronic lung allograft dysfunction after lung transplant, or even uh, new pulmonary fibrosis, which is now the cause of, uh, I think, 10% of lung transplants in the United States. And then the benefits are not really limited to the recipients themselves. I think our programs stand to gain a lot from making sure that all of their recipients are as protected from COVID-19 as possible. Uh, this might be a way to reduce COVID-19 caseloads and particularly vulnerable patients at your center. Of course, if your candidate or if your recipient goes on to get uh, COVID-19 after their transplant, there's a good chance they'll be referred back to your center uh, to get their specialty care. And um, we want to see as few of these cases as possible because they put a great strain on our centers. They, of course, devastate our candidates as well as our transplant teams who are extremely demoralized seeing so many of our uh, valued patients suffer and ultimately die from this disease. And then they have downstream implications for the other functions of our transplant centers, like elective procedures, even other transplants, and then the resources available to our communities more broadly. And then I think the last thing that is increasingly becoming a concern is the potential for immunosuppressed uh, people who have COVID-19 infections, who have very prolonged and high levels of SARS-CoV-2 virus uh, to provide a context for viral evolution. I saw a really interesting uh, paper recently about a patient who was shedding viable SARS-CoV-2 virus for over 100 days. And over that period, there were multiple um, mutations in the virus, some of which actually conferred resistance to convalescent or vaccine-induced uh, sera, and so potentially represent a context for the evolution of viral variants that may even be resistant uh, to our currently available vaccines, monoclonal antibodies, or other treatments. So I think in a big picture way, just having these patients as protected as possible from COVID-19 by having them vaccinated before their transplants is a step that we can take to help them, help ourselves, and really help the rest of the world get through the pandemic. Great. Thank you so much, Olivia. Ben, I think you bring a different perspective to this that it's valuable to hear as well. Well, thank you, Emily. So uh, 
My remarks will be keyed off of uh, my paper, re also recently published in the American Journal of Transplantation, entitled uh, Mandating COVID-19 Vaccination Prior to Kidney Transplantation in the United States. No solutions, only decisions. Uh, and I came to uh, be motivated to write this paper in part because uh, I was uh, forced through a circumstance in my previous position as a transplant nephrologist uh, in a large transplant center in Charlotte prior to uh, my current position at Fresenius Medical Care in thinking through whether or not our transplant program should enact a transplant mandate uh, and, and also sort of trying to think through uh, these issues through the prism of uh, being someone who was providing care to uh, transplanted patients uh, with SARS-CoV-2 infection, some of which died. Addressing the, the complexity of issues around how to address uh, transplant candidates uh, who were otherwise excellent candidates for transplantation, but for one reason or another, uh, were resistant to uh, getting COVID-19 vaccination. I don't think it's disputable that it's well within the clinical purview of kidney transplant programs, solid organ transplant programs to mandate vaccines uh, for their list of patients. I think that that is, uh, I think that's well covered uh, in, in the legal uh, grounding for which transplant centers uh, are empowered to make decisions about uh, organ allocation and transplant candidacy. My concerns, uh, insofar as they are concerns, really uh, are around uh, whether or not a mandate is uh, feasible and advisable because of some of the unintended consequences that may come about as a result of a mandate, uh, some of which I outline in my paper. I think so. So, you know, we are providers of care to patients and we've all in, in various ways um, experienced the anguish of having patients uh, suffer and die unnecessarily from the complications of SARS-CoV-2 infection. Uh, but we're also scientists, and um, particularly on a matter that is so polarizing, I think we have a particular obligation to uh, approach uh, the science of this uh, in a detached way. So almost unique around the world, after a brief dip in the volume of transplant in the United States, in the United States uh, the United States rebounded significantly um, just uh, a few weeks after uh, the pandemic in terms of transplant volume. And so we were able to successfully undertake multi-organ, solid organ transplantation in the absence of a vaccine for at least six or seven months. Uh, so, you know, I think one of the questions that uh, we have to ask ourselves if we're contemplating a mandate is, uh, yes, certainly performing solid organ transplantation with global T-cell immunosuppression in a patient that's already been vaccinated is clinically preferable to someone who's been unvaccinated. But it's not quite right to say that undertaking transplantation in patients who are unvaccinated is manifestly unsafe. If it were, we wouldn't have been able to do it for the six or seven months prior to the vaccine. I think we also have to take some care in talking about how we quantify risk reduction from COVID-19 vaccination. So a lot of the data that we have about complications of SARS-CoV-2 infection after transplantation are in hospitalized patients, which are not uh, all patients who get COVID-19. We can say a lot about case fatality rates 
uh, in COVID-19, but we can't say a lot about infection fatality rates because infection fatality rates <clears throat> presume that we can track and identify patients who may have been infected <clears throat> with SARS-CoV-2 but never tested um, and who were asymptomatic. So, you know, we can't really quantify what the infection fatality rate reduction is from uh, a system of effective, let's just say, vaccine mandates uh, versus not. I think that's going to be important, particularly in addressing the relevant population, which are patients at this point now 20 months into the pandemic and 11 months after a vaccine was widely available who have still not been vaccinated. So to this point, I would distinguish between whether a vaccine mandate is justified I think it is for whether a vaccine mandate is instrumentally beneficial. That is, is it actually going to be effective in increasing the rates of vaccination and overcome vaccine hesitancy uh, on a number of fronts? Uh, in the paper, I also talk about uh, some of the downstream decisions that centers will have to make if they decide to implement a mandate. Should vaccines should also be uh, required for uh, cohabitants uh, or support people? Are there some sort of tests that need to be done since we are now seeing evidence of breakthrough infection in patients who've received at least two doses of the uh, Pfizer and Moderna vaccine and one of the Johnson Johnson vaccine? Are we going to require booster uh, doses uh, at, at periodic intervals for as long as the pandemic transpires? And are we going to require vaccines for uh, living donors for these patients as well. Um, and, it, and it seems as though there's some inconsistency across transplant centers, even who have mandates, as to whether they also require some of these downstream uh, uh, vaccination statuses in order to proceed forward with transplant. And then finally, I linger about the extent, I linger on the question of whether or not vaccine mandates may actually exacerbate existing inequities in access to transplantation, highlighting in particular uh, some evidence uh, which may now be out of date, suggesting that particularly among uh, Hispanic and African-American groups, uh, that rates of vaccination may be lower. I say maybe out of date because since this paper was published, I have seen some data from the Kaiser Family Foundation suggesting that that gap has narrowed. Uh, in any event, I think there's still a concern with regard to uh, extant mistrust of the medical profession, which by no means has resolved, uh, and the extent to which a vaccine mandate policy uh, may exacerbate those particular, uh, that particular uh, uh, social phenomenon. Great. Thank you so much, Ben. And Amy, I think your perspective is especially important because we're all sort of talking about things that we think should or should not be done. But understanding this from the perspective of the individual on a transplant waiting list or who's had a transplant is especially important. And we're so grateful to you for being willing to share your perspective on this. Thanks so much, Emily. And I have been incredibly fortunate to live with a transplanted heart for almost 34 years so far. And it has been my honor and pleasure to write an editorial for the AJT on this important topic. As I see it, uh, there is a clear through line in this complex vaccine mandate, because when I look at my decades of transplant life, it is clear to me that the extraordinary benefits that I received through transplantation have been accompanied by extraordinary mandates. Transplantation is characterized by a series of mandates for patients, both pre and post. And what this amounts to essentially 
is a series of compromises to personal liberty made by all transplant patients. Because when individual liberty comes up against medical necessity, med medical necessity is going to win every time, especially when you're dealing with a scarce life-saving resource that needs to be allocated. Now, as my transplant cardiologist told me wisely on the first day I met him, he said there's no free lunch in transplant. And instead, transplant is responsibility. And that starts the minute you join the waiting list. And hurdles and mandates, they're all over the place. And some of them are pretty darn objectionable. And I think I should name a few for supporting evidence here. In my 34 years of transplant life, I have abided, tolerated, gritted my teeth through, and in some instances been traumatized by some of the transplant mandates I have had to follow, like immunosuppression. We patients have to take lifelong medicines that quash our immune system, and that is the most health-giving part of our bodies. Objectionable, I think, um, but we comply with it and we suffer the consequences. Um, another mandate, how about invasive exams? I've had 98 mandated heart biopsies, and boy, are those hard to tolerate. None of them yielded any actionable results. And I found this mandate abhorrent, but I followed it. And then there are those smaller mandates, you know, how about that you can't take Advil? I'm a runner and a kettlebeller. You know, ouch, I could use a little, you know, a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory. And what about the no drugs, no alcohol, no smoking rule? It certainly is not a lot of fun when you're at a party or, or say, you know, a couple hundred parties over 34 years, and you're the only one in the room who hasn't got a little buzz on. You know, it's like it's like being a nerd by mandate. And, you know, I'm being funny here, but, but here's the point, as I wrote in my editorial. Transplant is a humbling existence because the price of life means saying yes to medical undertakings that sometimes go against what you want or agree with or believe to be good for you. And transplant, as I wrote, can blow your mind that way. And it certainly blew my mind um, when I was trying to get on the transplant waiting list and had to jump over numerous hurdles that I disagreed with. Uh, but I rose up and met everyone. Now, why should, I really don't see why, a COVID-19 mandate should be different. And I think we need to ask ourselves, since when do we allow personal proclivities or beliefs that are not science-based to dictate pre-transplant mandates? I mean, what if a lung candidate said he was a smoker, had no plans to stop, his dad was a smoker and he was 90 years old, you know? Would you then question the pre-transplant mandate against smoking? And how long would you educate this patient until you said, you know what, you're off the waiting list? Or would you leave him on the waiting list because he believes that smoking is harmless and to mandate against it would, you know, infringe on his personal liberty. You know, and finally, you know, for those who argue against vaccination mandates, you know, citing a lack of reliable data to quantify risk reduction, I have to say, well, welcome to transplantation because transplant is replete with limited data and medical uncertainties. And yet, despite this limitation, transplant physicians give and patients accept treatments, medications, invasive exams that, um, that have physical and psychological costs. And it seems to me the cost of a COVID-19 vaccine mandate is, is remarkably small by comparison. And as for the feasibility of this mandate, it's tricky, it's messy, but again, Welcome to transplantation. Um, so overall, as I see it, many aspects of transplantation have long required this kind of difficult balancing for practitioners and some pretty unpalatable mandates for patients. And I think that this COVID-19 vaccina vaccination issue doesn't add to these aspects. It just brings them to the fore so we can look at them more closely. Thanks. Thanks so much, Amy. 
So I'm going to pick up on something that you had as a theme, and, and I'm going to ask Ben to address this and, and see if other people have concerns. Why is this different than other things we ask people to do? I mean, it's become clearly a flashpoint throughout the country now as we think about mandating this vaccine, both for, for candidates and patients, but also for healthcare workers. And certainly in many health systems, this has been a big issue as well. So why now? Why is this different? We're asked to get flu shots every year. Our patients are asked to get any host of procedures done. I'm not sure why it's different. I mean, I have some thoughts. And just to extend your point, Emily, and, and perhaps Amy's as well, you know, in the course of accepting people for listing for transplantation, uh, we ask patients to complete a, a wide range of tests, uh, the evidence base for, for which, in fact, in many instances, is considerably smaller than the evidence of efficacy for COVID-19 vaccination. I would call out, just for example, uh, cardiovascular screening studies for kidney transplant recipients. Uh, the, the frequency with which uh, revascularizable uh, ischemic heart disease is identified uh, in, in particular cases where revascularization is actually indicated uh, versus the risks of the same being worse than the, than the disease, as it were, uh, is something that's commonplace in kidney transplant programs. And again, for which the evidence base is smaller. Why is COVID-19 different? I think in part, uh, it's different from say flu vaccinations and the rest because uh, it, the, the, the topic of mandating vaccines outside of transplantation has contributed to a phenomenon of group polarization. Group polarization is a sociological concept uh, wherein people who have a view on a particular end of a bell curve uh, ideologically uh, tend to move further to that end of the bell curve uh, when, when surrounded by narratives that reinforce uh, certain premises along those lines. And I think that's part of what's going on uh, with COVID-19 uh, vaccination mandates. Uh, the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic uh, has resulted in the widespread application of what may be perceived as minor abridgments to civil liberties, but what in fact uh, resulted in substantial disruptions in uh, uh, people's workaday lives, whether it be uh, remote learning for children or remote work or working adults, uh, mask wearing everywhere and, uh, and social distancing and the rest, I think had developed, created a level of uh, social unrest and exacerbated levels of mistrust in um, both state and authority uh, figures uh, that have, has only sort of sets the stage as if for, for what makes COVID-19 vaccination uh, different. This is one of the reasons that I'm interested in whether a mandate policy would be instrumentally effective. Um, I, I think that's in some ways a more interesting question as to versus whether or not it's ethically justifiable, because I'm not sure, at least among this small group, that's not group polarized so much, uh, that that's altogether controversial. Thanks. Olivia, you look like you have something you want to add to this. I think I'll just echo what Ben brought up, that people have experienced a lot of suffering over the past, I guess, several years now. And a big part of the experience of that suffering has been looking for sort of the causative agents. And I think there's been an effective political or anti-science movement scapegoating science and medicine and the healthcare organization as sort of the primary or leading 
agents in the suffering that people have experienced during the pandemic. And when someone is given the opportunity to embrace that, I think it's actually not very surprising that they become uh, sort of recalcitrant in their resistance to the further recommendations that seem to pile on on past recommendations that they remember as only uh, painful, harmful, exasperating, or distressing. Thank you. Amy, do you have something you want to add to that? Yeah, I mean, uh, first of all, I mean, I think it's plain as can be that politics has no place in transplantation, period. You know, and that's just got to be our position, your position. You can't even entertain it. It's like somebody walked in and told you a fairy tale. Uh, you know, I believe that I don't need immunosuppression. It's just I won't need it. And that's what I believe. Well, you know, no, you know, uh, it just doesn't really make any sense to me that you would allow, you know, these non-science thoughts. And then I also wonder, and again, I'm not saying that a patient won't take their immunosuppression if they won't take a vaccine. But, you know, if you are doubting science, transplantation is not a good thing to go into because you are doing all sorts of terrible things to your body, all in the trust in science that we can't, we don't really, really have a great hold of either. So, you know, we have a better hold of COVID than we do of, you know, how to keep someone alive past 10 years with a transplanted organ. So I think you're set up for a pretty tough time there. Um, and I think we need to just to call these things what they are, which is sort of nonsense, frankly. Thanks. You know, I'm wondering, one of the things that's come up also has been, where do you draw the line? So if you mandate COVID vaccines for patients, what about healthcare workers? What about family members? How do we make their community safe? We know for a fact that a lot of the COVID acquisition now in the community that's happening among vaccinated people, not just transplant patients, but vaccinated people in general, has been from the close contact with others, especially household contacts. So where do we draw the line? Olivia, what do you think? Yeah, I think that if we are looking at mandates as ethically justified purely on the basis of this sort of harms and benefits analysis, or basically what is the best possible context in which to put a new transplant organ, then we're going to find ourselves reaching really, really far down the line and trying to compel vaccination for some pretty removed people from our actual sort of sphere of influence. And that's actually why I think it's important to circle back and find the other justifications and other rationales for mandates apart from this strict harms and benefits calculation. Because we're not just out here trying to absolutely maximize the utility of transplantation. A lot of people would be excluded. It, you know, we're here trying to be compassionate toward our patients and give each patient the best chance that we can for a successful transplant. And that's why I think the line is actually much closer to the patient themselves. It's a lot to ask of the patient that they not only be vaccinated themselves, but that they also somehow create a context around themselves where everyone else is vaccinated too. I think that becomes a little too demanding of our patients. And I think we can be a little bit more generous. Healthcare workers, I think, should absolutely be subject to vaccine mandates. And I think programs implementing mandates should take care that their mandates for patients resemble their mandates for healthcare workers. It wouldn't be appropriate to see, for example, more exceptions or more allowances offered to the staff than to the patients themselves. Amy, what are your expectations as a patient? Of, like, what's the circle of trust, so to speak? The circle of trust with those around me, those healthcare workers. Healthcare right. workers, family members, like, what, own, yeah, like, what own. do you? What are your expectations to create a safe environment? 
Well, I, I look at it with science and I just know that if I'm vaccinated, when I'm immunocompetent, I'm really doing the best I can for myself, you know, come what may. I would hope that those around me are being safe. I would have the mask in the house, whatever it is. But I would just try to get myself vaccinated while immunocompetent and not leave it till later. You know, it's, it's hard for me to say because, of course, my family, you know, would want to do everything they can for me. You know, so uh, but but I, I just think that um, that giving myself the best best shot is 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 what I what I would do. But I do want to comment on something Olivia said um, in terms of harms and benefits and um, doing the best we can. You know, when I look at all of this, I see that transplantation, let's be honest about it, is very much geared towards survival in the first year. We hope for longer, but that's what you guys are really good at. Right. And, um, you know, if if patients are not vaccinated, you know, when they're immunocompetent, that's going to take a hit, probably. I mean, I, I wonder if you're going to see different data, you know, from 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 centers that don't um, mandate vaccine, you know, in the first, you know, before you're before you're vaccinated. So I think that, you know, Ben also commented on like, how long do we go? Do you have to have boosters every three? But what do you do? Let's worry about the first year. Let's get them transplanted. Let's get them through that really tricky time. That is also the time on which you are your center is evaluated for success or failure, you know, so let's, why don't we make it a little narrower and get them through that year and then we'll worry about later, you know, how about that? Thanks. Ben, and your role as an administrator, a large healthcare entity in Fresenius, you know, certainly the issue of where do you draw the line must have come up as you developed your policies for those who work in your dialysis centers and also for the community of dialysis patients who are all there at the same time. How did you guys approach this? Well, thanks for the question. So in my previous professional life, uh, in addition to being a full-time clinician uh, as a transplant nephrologist, I also practiced as a general nephrologist and I was the medical director of the uh, SARS-CoV-2 isolation dialysis facility in Greater Charlotte for Fresenius. Uh, and I would say that we uh, approached it with uh, speed and an open-mindedness to rapid revision to our pro policies and protocols as we needed to. Uh, we had to develop uh, an entire uh, novel approaches to getting patients out of the hospital uh, who had a new SARS-CoV-2 diagnosis uh, and getting them transported sometimes quite far away from their domiciles uh, to, per to get dialysis in an isolation facility, as well as figure out how to be able to uh, come up with uh, safe criteria for repatriating them. Uh, what we didn't know at the time and which we have come to know now is uh, the extent to which uh, viral shedding can transpire uh, after patients are uh, no longer meaningfully infectious. Uh, but that resulted in isolating patients for, in some cases, weeks and weeks while they continued to shed and continued to have uh, positive uh, PCR tests. Uh, it, it also posed additional challenges for uh, where these patients ultimately resided after they came out of the hospital. Um, some of them uh, had really no choice but to go home, but that posed additional challenges to uh, their family members and other cohabitants. Uh, and if they were in nursing homes, uh, well, we, we sort of knew, knew how that went. So we had to take on a whole host of additional logistical challenges to say nothing of um, identifying the valiant dialysis staff members uh, who ran and worked in those facilities for months and months, um, exposing themselves on a regular basis. And of course, by extension, 
their family members and loved ones uh, to the possibility of uh, SARS-CoV-2 infection. You know, it's uh, it, it, it's had a devastating effect uh, on the on the dialysis community. Uh, we've seen tens of thousands of excess deaths, I think, around the world. Um, to say nothing of the fact that uh, of the patients who are on the kidney transplant waiting list, uh, one of the highest uh, causes of death over 2020 uh, were patients who died waiting because of uh, SARS-CoV-2 infection. Thanks, Josh. I think you had a question. Yeah, thanks, everybody. This is a really great discussion. I, I wanted to bring up uh, another thing that's been on our minds here in Chicago, which is the thing, one of the things that we discuss at the transplant center is that if somebody, one of our patients on the list declines getting vaccinated, we have four other transplant centers in Chicago they could be evaluated and go to that might accept them. However, as we know, I mean, Roz is in a place where there's, you know, not a lot of, there's one center, right, um, in, a, in a, you know, in a smaller city. This is, you know, again, this is sort of brings up maybe some of the um, geographic issues. And so it may be easier for us to apply a mandate because we have other uh, centers that patients can be evaluated that might be more liberal, whereas places that you know, only have one center for hundreds of miles, maybe kind of forced into this. I'm wondering if uh, this has come up. It's just something that crossed my mind. Maybe Ben or Olivia might have a comment on that. I've got sure. Oh, everybody's got one. For every, everybody. <laughs> yeah. well, I'll go. I'm I, awesome. Go ahead, please. Yes. <laughs> I think this is a really great question, and it kind of harkens back to the original vaccine refusal debate, which was dismissal from pediatric practices when pediatricians would say, you know, I'm not treating uh, families who refuse vaccination for their children. But part of that process often included referral out to another pediatric practice so that these kids would still receive, you know, needed pediatric care. I think that's a little bit different, actually, in transplantation. We are creating the mandate not because we think everybody is equally entitled to transplantation 100% of the time, but we have a specific sort of atmosphere we want to create at our center, but actually because we think that there are reasonable barriers that candidates face before they are sort of entitled or before they are eligible to have a transplant. And so I don't know that referral out to another center is an ethical necessity. So centers who don't have that option may still be able to implement mandates. But said, I think it would be a little disingenuous to conceal that option from patients if you are in a situation where someone might have the opportunity to be transplanted elsewhere. In the long run, I think this is an opportunity for centers to work together to really determine what we think is going to be the most reasonable um, the most ethical and the most feasible uh, policy that we might be able to share across many centers. Because I think COVID-19, you know, there's not a center of excellence for the management of transplant patients with COVID-19 where it might be safer and more reasonable to go through the transplant process, but still to get this infection. You know, there's really no context where I think that it would be a good idea to willfully let that happen. So maybe it's something we can work on together. I might pick up on that. So 
I, I think uh, maybe the force of your question, Josh, is if you're in a market where there are other transplant programs that don't have a vaccine mandate, it may result in patients not being referred to your center, uh, reduce your transplant volume and the like. And I think you know, this is part and parcel of one of the themes of my paper, which is that being in charge of a transplant program is difficult. It results in having to make complicated decisions based on incomplete information in line with what your good faith, best clinical judgments are. And so to that extent, as difficult as it is, I think it's just our common professional obligation to try and uh, make the right call clinically. Uh, even if it results in, even if it, even if it uh, redounds not to the benefit of uh, how a center competes against others in its market. That being said, uh, I think that this is a conversation that is transpiring in good faith uh, in transplant centers and that centers that are not enacting a mandate um, may be well doing so. Uh, because that is, in fact, their best considered clinical judgment when they think about all the pros and cons of a mandate and, and all the things that follow along. I did want to circle back to something that was said earlier with regard to uh, medical necessity and patient autonomy, as it were. I guess as, as a clinician, I'm, I'm, I'm generally less confident in uh, assertions of medical necessity in many instances. Uh, and I think that there's specific examples in the transplant world where assertions of medical necessity have been called into question because of the absence of an evidence base. I would take, for example, uh, cannabis use among organ transplant recipients uh, or the requirement for alcohol abstinence for greater than six months among uh, liver transplant candidates, which uh, while I think is still a broadly extant policy, may not have the evidence base that it used to. I think that as clinician scientists, we should be uh, attuned to, attentive to, and respond to changes in the evidence uh, as they come up. As this pandemic evolves, and as we eventually crash into herd immunity, I think that's the right way to put it, eventually our approach to COVID-19 vaccination may well change. And I think that we just, whatever we write now will ultimately be washed away when the tide comes and you know, hits the sand. So these are, these are very much messages in the sand that we're writing for today and for the immediate near future. I, I want to just switch a little bit of the gears of a of a trend, a disturbing trend um, in our community is the many positive COVID positive donors. And I'm not just talking about incidental positives, but we're getting many more offers now, particularly in the Midwest of individuals that have actually died of COVID that have had been on a ventilator and maybe had a myocardial infarction. I, I would say that's one that I that I off, I see quite a bit or had a stroke. And I, you know, I think that one of the compulsions about concerns of, of initiating a mandate was the concern of the low level risk. And we spend many hours coming up with, you know, how do we inform consent patients in the absence of strong data? So I don't know if, if any of you have thought about it in terms of the rest of the region, because I know the Midwest is a microcosm of the rest of the of the East and West Coast. I, I know, Olivia, you wrote a, a paper many, it seems like it was decades ago, about the potential or non-potential of COVID positive donors. That was back when we said absolutely not. Yeah, I remember that. That was uh, with uh, 
Dr. Ajit LeMay at the University of Washington. And we had the, a really exciting time sort of putting together this paper, hypothesizing that it might in fact be safe to accept non-lung organs from donors who test positive with COVID-19. And I think that was in March of 2020. So we may have been a little bit uh, ahead of even the most reasonable predictors, but now many months later, I think we're seeing this uh, come into practice, which for me has actually been really exciting because as much as COVID has sort of damaged transplant practice and slowed us down, it's wonderful to see centers taking advantage of new or different opportunities to keep transplantation going and uh, get organs to our patients in need. I think vaccination is a really reasonable uh, expectation to set for candidates who might then accept a COVID positive donor, sort of similar to what we might say for um, hepatitis B positive donors. Ideally, those organs would be placed with the recipients who are immune to hepatitis B. There's a difference here in that we have a long acting sort of lifelong antiviral therapy available for hepatitis B. And so there is a little more flexibility in that scenario than for COVID where really pre-existing protection with vaccination is probably the best option and other alternatives that are sort of under investigation or have been proposed or used on a case-by-case -case basis like monoclonal antibody therapy at the time of transplantation, you know, are similarly reasonable, but are much higher cost, maybe associated with more risk and then, you know, are untested. I've, I've sort of got a follow-up question there. What do you all think about the oral antivirals that will soon be out and whether those might be a game changer and those might affect perhaps the need for a vaccine in our community? Well, I, I think, think that, oh yeah, Emily, you're the pro. Oh. I, I think that's a really good question. But unfortunately, the antiviral performance is probably not going to be as good as being vaccinated. You know, we, I, I would sort of reframe it as antivirals that we have for influenza would be a similar example in terms of you need to intervene early. There are probably going to be some limitations, potentially, for example, with molnupravir, with um, childbearing women of childbearing age may be an issue. And ultimately, it assumes that you'll be able to deliver this product in a very timely fashion to get maximal benefit. And so I don't think it will replace vaccination, but it certainly is encouraging to think that there may be something on the horizon that will be yet another tool to help us combat this. Vaccination is really all that we have right now to protect patients from unrecognized exposures. And for those of us who have gone through our lives and received the email from hospital epidemiology saying you've had an exposure to COVID-19, we know that unrecognized exposures are really, really common. All of these other sort of after the fact interventions rely on us at least knowing that the patient is exposed sometimes even making a diagnosis of active COVID-19. And I think leaving that up to chance would be my biggest worry. Well, maybe the combination of vaccination and the antiviral after is really something that would make people feel that the efficacy is perhaps worth a jab. So this has been a great discussion. I, I kind of like you to forecast in the future from the three of you what you think about, we all agree that vaccination is worth doing but 
it's clear that the discussion has become so polarizing and so politicized that it has been a roadblock unlike any I ever would have anticipated. And I'm wondering if you could each share your thoughts on how can we return this to the sphere of medicine and science and take it out of this sort of really charged, polarizing issue. So, Amy, you look like you're ready to answer. Yeah, I mean, I, when you say, you know, return it to science, it never left science. You know, I, I refuse to recognize if somebody comes in with a, they want to plant some beans and grow a tree and climb up it, it's just not happening. I think we need to just, you know, calmly and, you know, surely bring people back to the science. You're all about science. I've never heard anything but science from my transplant doctors. I, I, I don't want to start to hear fairy tales. Ben, what do you think? You're in a part of the country where certainly there's a diversity of opinion. To be sure, I think that the way in which the transplant community successfully navigates this is by being attuned to the science in the following way. Science is all about probabilistic explanation. It is not about pronouncements. It must be rooted in the evidence and the evidence changes and shifts over time and we must be able to change and shift with it. I think that our decisions unfortunately are inextricably linked with political considerations, whether we want them to be or not. The only way in which we can avoid the wrong kind of entanglements is fidelity to the evidence and being clear about what we do know and what we really don't and continue to uphold certain professional ideals and obligations in service to our patients, which is what this is really all about. Great, thanks. And Olivia, final words? Yeah, I think similar to what Ben said, medicine will never be apolitical. You know, our patients are political agents and subject to political forces, and so are we. And I think a lot of the polarization that we're seeing is a downstream effect of what we also spoke about earlier, suffering. And so I think we can use our political agency to make every effort we can to relieve that suffering that's caused by other forces, structural forces like racism and poverty, for example, are open to our intervention too. And it may be that over a long period of laboring at that, we find a community that's more uh, integrated, more open to these communitarian uh, policies like vaccination. Thank you. Roz and Josh, turn this back over to you for thoughts and conclusions. Well, this has been um, really thought provoking for me. I hope that our readers will go to the journal, read these both these viewpoints, read the editorial, listen to this podcast, converse amongst the faculty within their own institution and recognizing that rather than, you know, uh, creating a community, a collaborative community is what this conversation was about and reflecting on some of these issues. I think none of us wants to impede the care of our patients, but I also know that none of us wants to set them on the wrong path, first year or long-term. Josh, I have, uh, I'll turn it over to you to send us home. Yeah, no, I just, more of a thanks to um, everybody who participated here. I'd like to be able to do more of these kind of one-offs with AJT highlights, and this is a particularly interesting, controversial, of a very important issue, and I'm sure we will revisit this down the road and maybe invite you all back. So I just want to thank all of you for, for participating and um, much appreciated. Look forward to your articles coming out in the journal. 
The opinions of the hosts of the show do not necessarily reflect those of the American Journal of Transplantation. For AJT highlights, you can find us online at amjtransplant.com. That's amjtransplant.com. And follow us on Facebook and Twitter. 